Last time on A Killing on the Cape. I suspected him as a suspect, the first suspect, and then her as the second. I can't believe they would suspect you, and so we were questioned quite a few times. And Say, we can't rule him in, we can't rule him out. And it kind of stayed like that, and it was going to stay like that until he made an arrest. Krista's love life was um, a mess. There's no other way to describe it. In the weeks following Krista Worthington's murder, police had a laundry list of people they suspected of being involved. Tony Jacket, the father of Krista's baby, and his wife Susan were questioned by police, but investigators were forced to turn their attention elsewhere. And soon the entire town of Truro would be in the crosshairs as public pressure on District Attorney Michael O'Keefe to solve the case grew. We believe that Krista Worthington was involved in an intimate relationship with a person prior to or relatively contemporaneous with her death. I think he felt the pressure to solve this also because it was such a nationally publicized case. This is not just a little Cape Cod murder. It suddenly involved New York, Los Angeles. The whole country was watching what was happening with this murder. From ABC Radio in 2020, I'm Mark Remillard, and this is A Killing on the Cape. Tony and Susan Jacket wouldn't be officially ruled out by police for the roughly three years it took for them to find and charge Christopher McCowan in the rape and murder of Krista. Both had recalled where they were the weekend Krista was killed, and the cops were satisfied. And despite the fact that Tony told police Krista had been, quote, nagging him for financial support of Ava several months before her death, Tony and Susan Jacket say things had smoothed over between them and Krista. Susan Jacket. It wasn't difficult. I, uh... Once I got to know Krista, I, I liked her, I enjoyed her company, and uh, I just felt sorry for her dilemma, for Ava's dilemma, my dilemma, my children's, and I said, you know, if Tony and I are going to stay together, we have to make this work. The Jackets weren't the only ones with the cloud over their heads, though. Like Tony, another former lover of Krista's would become a focal point of the investigation for police. And the fact that this man was the one who found her body only served to ignite the suspicion around him. I first met Tim Arnold after Krista's murder. We met Tim Arnold in episode one. He was the ex-boyfriend of Krista's who arrived at 50 Depot Road on Sunday, January 6th, 2002, to return a flashlight he'd borrowed from her. That's when he found Krista dead on the floor and ran back through the woods to his father's house to call 911 after he couldn't find a phone inside her house. 911, this line's recorded. What's the problem? It's Krista Worthington. I don't know what happened. I think she fell down or something. I'm, I'm sure she's dead. I think she's dead. Okay, is there somebody there? I just, I'm a friend and I just was returning a flashlight to her and I saw a light on. Her two-year-old daughter was there nursing on her body. Okay, I'll send them right over. God, thank you. Tim hasn't done interviews in years and wouldn't speak with us for this story, but author Maria Fluke, whose book Invisible Eden was published in 2004, did get to know Tim Arnold and believes he really did love Krista. He was the first person I think I spoke to who knew Krista well because he had had a a relationship with Krista that lasted for a while and ended... uh, when they couldn't work through their problems. He came over to speak to me, and I asked him direct questions about Krista, 
um, about the depth of his feeling for her, he would say things like, can't talk about that. Nope, not going to discuss that. Because he was in great pain. He was in pain over her death, but I think he was also still in pain because she had rejected him. Tim met Krista through a mutual friend, and the two began dating in the fall of 1999, according to what Tim told police on the night he found Krista's body. Ava had already been born by that time, and Krista's affair with Tony Jacket was over. Tim and Krista's connection to each other actually made a lot of sense. Tim is tall, soft-spoken, and good-looking, and perhaps most importantly, he's smart. I got to know him. He's a very pleasant person, an educated person. He's um, both a visual artist, he's a painter, and he's written a, a couple books. I think one reason Krista connected with Tim Arnold is that he was literary. He wrote a couple books. He wrote this book, The Winter Mittens, which is a children's book, but it's a very strange little children's book. It's very dark. Fluke says it's about a girl who finds a pair of mittens that causes it to snow. And at first that's a good thing, but then the snowstorm grows and doesn't stop and the girl can't get the mittens off. Anyways, the point being that Krista and Tim seem to have had their love of writing in common, and they dated for about a year, with Tim eventually moving into Krista's house at 50 Depot Road and becoming very close with Ava. He became um, somebody who helped Krista. He was a babysitter, but also helped around the house. Um, Ava started to call him Tim Mom. So he wasn't just Tim, he was Tim Mom, because he was like another mother. But it was also during that time that fault lines in the relationship began to emerge. And a growing issue was Tim's health problems, which included neurological and eyesight issues. Um, but they had a an intense relationship that I think um, at first she depended on him because she was a single mother and he was very helpful to her. But I think she saw that he had demands that frightened her. His eye condition bothered her because she, she told him, I worry you're going to fall on my daughter because he had trouble walking sometimes because of his AVM eye condition where, you know, he often had to cover one eye to be able to see clearly. Otherwise, he would see double. She was sort of difficult with him. I mean, Tim said that she would criticize him for humming. And she would say she didn't want Ava to become a hummer. <laughs> so he couldn't even hum, which is something you do when you're happy. You hum when you're happy. So in a way, it was like saying to him, don't be happy around me. You know, that's not a way I want to teach my daughter. I want to teach her more serious things. Tim and Krista's relationship began to deteriorate, and the two would wind up in arguments about a number of things, from the frequency of sex to money. But according to Trooper Mason's interview with Tim, their arguments would never escalate to physical violence. Tim told police that Krista would often be critical of him, but that when their arguments would boil over or reach a stalemate, he says he would end up walking away. One of the things that we all need to learn is that it costs us more in the long run to get deeply embedded and to fight not to get out when you know the time has come to get out. Neither of these people knew that, so they fought at the end. And it was destructive on both, both sides. Peter Manzo, author of Reasonable Doubt, The Fashion Writer, The Cape, and The Trial of Chris McCowan, he also worked as a consultant on this story. 
Tim says it wasn't a specific incident that drove him to finally move out of Krista's, but he told police that he had thought about it a number of times, and after growing tired of constant arguing, he finally packed his things and moved back in with his father in the fall of 2000, whose home is just a few hundred yards from Krista. That's the same home that Tim ran back through the woods to call 911 from the night he found Krista's body. But even though he and Krista broke up, Tim stuck around so he could stay involved in Ava's life, though police say he later acknowledged to them that he still harbored feelings for Krista and had in part hoped that he could rekindle their relationship. They remained in contact. It wasn't as if they stopped talking. He was hanging on. He didn't want to move on. And he felt rejected and um, stymied. After she threw him out of her bed, he continued to volunteer to babysit for her while she went to the movies with this one or went to a dinner party over here. In Tim's diary, he writes about Krista, and you get a sense of the back and forth and the uneasiness Tim had with the situation after their breakup. He writes about making plans with Krista and expecting that she'll call and cancel. Then at another time, he writes that he's fragile from being rejected by her and questions why he allowed himself to get into the situation when, as he says, quote, I should clearly have seen her lack of intentions from the start. Despite the uneasiness, Tim still tried to remain part of Krista and Ava's lives and did so for more than a year. But his relationship with Krista, their arguments, that she had rejected him, and the fact that he found her body, none of that looked good for him. Well, the police took Tim Arnold back to the station. Author Maria Fluke says after Tim found Krista's body, the police weren't the only ones that had questions for him. In fact, she says his own father, who had driven him to Krista's to return the flashlight, even wondered if it was possible. Um, but they took him back to question him that night. And they spent some time with him, and then they drove him home. And he walked into the house, and his father was in front of the TV. And I was very shocked when Tim told me that his father said to Tim, Tim, did you do it? His own father asked him that. From that moment on, the whole town was asking questions like that. Police interviewed Tim Arnold a number of times in the first year or so after Krista's death. In his first interview, he told police that he'd been house-sitting down in Wellfleet, not far from Truro, on the day he found Krista's body. The house he was staying at didn't have a clothes dryer, and he'd been doing some laundry, so he asked his dad to come pick him up so he could dry his clothes at his father's house. Remember those health problems I told you about? Well, in the spring of 2001, so about eight months before Krista's death, Tim underwent brain surgery, and coupled with double vision, he couldn't drive, so that's why his dad came to get him. So Tim is over at his dad's house doing laundry, and in the meantime, they're both watching the Patriots game. At some point, Tim calls Krista because, as he later told police, he had made tentative plans to have dinner with her that night. So he calls over there, gets no answer, and leaves a message. When the Patriots game ended, Tim's father, Robert, was about to drive him back to the house in Wellfleet and suggested that they return Krista's flashlight that Tim had borrowed a few days earlier on the way. They head just down the road to Krista's house, and that's when Tim finds her dead on the floor. My name is Russ Redgate. I'm a lawyer. I have been on Cape Cod for 30-some years. Russell Redgate was Tim Arnold's lawyer. I first met Tim in uh, June of 2002, and uh, it was in January when he discovered Krista Worthington's body. 
And uh, I liked him right away. He's a very soft-spoken, sensitive guy, artistic, uh, well-spoken, literary. Tim hired Russell after he took part in what by that time was at least his third interview with officers. They had talked to him on the night he found Krista's body, and then again three days later on January 9th. But after that, they'd go five months without talking to him. In that time, though, they were still taking a hard look at him. Police had subpoenaed his phone records. They'd checked with cab companies to see if he'd possibly used one to get to Krista's house that weekend. And when they met with Tim next, on June 13, 2002, Trooper Mason pressed him about some voice messages they had found on Krista's answering machine. Hi. I think I'm going to head back over to Wellfleet. I'm not particularly comfortable here with this nonstop stream of, of stuff. So, not that it matters much, but hope you had a nice day. Bye. Hi. Just calling to check and see if you have plans for the night yet. Bye. Hi. Sunday morning around 8. Would you like to go have coffee? Are you around? I thought you would be up. I'm sorry if you're not. Hey, take care. Krista. Hi, Krista. Um, what's up with, with the movie? Is that, uh, is that a problem? Is, is Did I call too early? I mean, I get the feeling that this is one of those things where you say you'll call back and you're not going to. And I wondered what this is all about, if anything. So give me a call if you can, would you? Thanks. Well, I think you've made it very clear where you stand on the issue of friendship. So I, at this point, don't expect me to be around it. Hi, Chris. Uh, just to clarify, if you wanted to call, to try to arrange for um, time for me to see Ava, that would be fine. I'll uh, I'll see what I can do. But I don't really think that we should see each other, even briefly. Bye. In his report from the June 13th interview, Trooper Mason began zeroing in on the fights and arguments Tim and Krista had during their relationship. You can also see a difference in the way the third report was written. Words like admitted started to appear as they pressed him on how he really felt about his relationship with Krista ending. For example, Mason writes, quote, At first, Arnold stated that he was satisfied with being friends. Arnold later admitted that part of his interest in visiting Ava was that it provided him with an opportunity to see Krista. Trooper Mason's report concludes with them asking Tim for his journals as well as his computer, which he later turned over to State Police Sergeant William Burke. The report also states that Tim had later called Sergeant Burke to tell him about an incident in which he stopped by Krista's house unannounced, something he had been asked by Krista not to do, and that she saw him, quote, peering in through the window. Tim told Sergeant Burke that he looked in the window because he had knocked on the door and there wasn't an answer. He told Burke that Krista was upset with him over that and added that if police were to find his fingerprints outside Krista's bedroom, quote, that would be the reason. So with the pressure ramping up from police, three days after that third interview, Tim called up Russell Redgate. The main job that I had when I met Tim was just to protect his rights. And I began with, uh, in June, the month I met him, 
with a letter to the DA's office to say that after talking with my client, he's decided to decline the interview that he had already set up with police. He, he had talked to them more than once, and he had agreed to talk again, but then, I, I don't know, I think his father kind of steered him to, you ought to talk to a lawyer. And the first letter simply said that we're going to decline the interview that he set up, but he wants to cooperate and further interviews are possible. It's just that I have to be involved in arranging the circumstances, setting the ground rules. And for the next six months, there appears to be a radio silence between police and Tim Arnold. That is, all the way up until January 17th, 2003, so just over a year after Tim found Krista's body. Trooper Mason wrote a report that day that said Tim had called him at his office and was upset that they had not cleared him from being involved in Krista's murder. Tim had heard that he was the chief suspect, and despite my advice, he called up Chris Mason. And he asked, he said, I've heard that I'm the chief suspect. And Chris Mason told him, yes, you are. That was, that, it was very upsetting. He certainly had a sense that he was under suspicion. There was no doubt about that. But that he was the chief suspect, uh, among so many others, probably uh, alarmed him, probably made him apprehensive. Uh, anyone who's under suspicion when they talk to me or any other criminal lawyer, one of the things they want to know is, am I going to get suddenly arrested? And you can't tell them no, because it might happen. You know? The fact that Tim was the chief suspect was so alarming and upsetting to Tim that by the next day, Redgate says Tim was in the hospital. He was very upset uh, about a lot of things at that time, Ma- mainly the case, but he was upset and maybe not thinking as clearly as he should have. I know that his psychologist was concerned that he needed help. She decided it would be best if he went to Cape Cod Hospital emergency room. He was admitted there, and they do have a psychiatric wing. I think they call it the Whitman Pavilion. And he was there at the Whitman Pavilion when, as I later learned, the police interviewed him. So on the day after Tim calls Trooper Mason, shocked to learn from police he's the chief suspect in their murder investigation, Mason and Sergeant Burke pay him a visit at the psychiatric wing of the hospital he's checked himself into. There, they question him again about when he last spoke to Krista, why he went by her house that Sunday, and as Redgate says, the accusations were quite direct. They're police, and there's two of them. And, you know, you get a jab from one side and then a right hook from the other. You know, they, they were rough in the sense of verbally. And there were direct accusations, as you can see from Tim's testimony. When he described that, he said that more than once he would say something like, I I had not killed Krista. And he said they would come right back and say, oh, yes, you did. According to police reports, Trooper Mason told Tim that he had heard about a fight in which Tim tried to break down the kitchen door, the same door that was apparently kicked in at the crime scene. Tim told Trooper Mason that he and Krista had been arguing one day and he had left. When he came back, Krista slammed the door and locked the deadbolt. Tim said at that point there, quote, may have been some pushing on the door, but that it wasn't broken down. Uh, Author Maria Fluke. Tim said that they accused him once of barging into her kitchen, that she complained that he barged into her kitchen. But this is a man that lived in that house and he had an argument brewing with her and he probably in anger just barged in. But it's that kitchen barging in scene that people like to talk about. But I, I don't think it was anything. Trooper Mason and Sergeant Burke tell Tim that his statements and actions were, quote, consistent with someone that was involved in the murder and told him that if he was involved, he needs to tell them the truth. Tim again denied involvement, 
then said he wanted his lawyer, and the interview ended. The two detectives that went to the hospital, I know them both. I know Bill Burke much better. Uh, I like him. I respect him. Um, they're police officers. And I, I will say that uh, as much as I could criticize many things about the way they, they did things, what troubled me the most was that they'd received a copy of my letter saying he's not going to give any interviews. They have to be arranged through me. Russell says he heard about the hospital interview a few days later and called the district attorney, Michael O'Keefe, who's still the district attorney for the Cape and Island District to this day. When I learned that this had happened that first day, the 21st of January, I was on the phone with a lot of people, including Michael O'Keefe. I talked with him, um, I think, one short conversation early in the day, but later he called me at home at night when he was free from his home to my home. And we talked. And he was emphatic that, that the police got nothing. And, uh, of course, if they had, I think it would have been subject to suppression. I was pretty confident of that. But Michael said they didn't get anything. Tim just said nothing that could hurt him. So with Tim not cracking under the pressure and his health problems affecting his mobility and vision, officers started to doubt his involvement in the crime. Krista's past lovers weren't the only focus for police early on in the investigation. As they looked at those closest to Krista, the investigation would come to include a member of her own family, former federal prosecutor and ABC senior legal correspondent, Sonny Hostin. Now they're looking at Krista's father, Toppy Worthington, and his girlfriend, Elizabeth Porter. While it may seem odd that the investigation turned towards Krista's father, Toppy, his relationship with his girlfriend was of interest. Christopher Toppy Worthington, 72-year-old, Harvard-educated lawyer, former prominent government official, turns out had a 29-year-old girlfriend who was a former prostitute and heroin addict. Dan Abrams, ABC's chief legal analyst. In the days after Krista's death, the development that Krista's father had become involved with a drug-addicted former prostitute 40 years younger than he was, and that Krista apparently had been quite upset about it, would make headlines. Can you tell us anything? Anything about the case? A lot of people want to know what Elizabeth Porter knows. The Quincy woman kept her hood up and her head down today. She was in district court to answer questions about probation violations. Porter was taken into custody after state police questioned her in the investigation into the stabbing death of fashion writer Krista Worthington this month. But before police would speak with Elizabeth Porter about the case, they first spoke with Krista's father. Toppy Worthington was notified of the murder on the night Tim Arnold found Krista's body, and he came down to Krista's uncle's house, the same place where all the rest of the Worthingtons had gathered. Toppy lived near Boston, so he wouldn't get to the house until about 9 p.m. But after he got there, he would ask some questions to police that seemed to grab their attention. While Sergeant Burke was telling Toppy about what had happened to Krista, Toppy interrupted him to ask, quote, if his daughter was on her back and if there was a lot of blood with injury to the right side of her head. How did he know Krista was on her back and that she had had cuts and bruises on her face, including swelling on her right eye? That's exactly what police wanted to know, and Toppy's questions seemed to help raise suspicions almost immediately. Sergeant Burke asked Toppy if anyone had told him about what happened to Krista. Toppy said no, and that he was just trying to figure out if the person who did it was, quote, right or left-handed. 
But what caught their attention most was his relationship to Elizabeth Porter. The day after Krista's body was found, Toppy spoke with investigators and was asked if he was seeing anyone. Toppy said yes, but refused to give investigators Elizabeth Porter's name. In Sergeant Burke's report of their conversation, Toppy said his girlfriend had, quote, trouble in the past, and that's why he didn't want to give them her name, but that if they wanted it, quote, I'm sure you'll find it. In fact, reports would surface that Elizabeth Porter had been linked to another murder case just a few years earlier. And in an odd twist, Porter is also linked to Dirk Greinader, who was convicted of killing his wife. You're all set. Thank you, Thank you, Your Honor. In that case, Porter testified before a grand jury that she met Greinader while working for an escort service in 1998. Dirk Greinader was a Massachusetts doctor who was sentenced to life in prison for killing his wife in 1999. The prosecution said Greinader had killed his wife after she became aware of his secret sex life, which had included Elizabeth Porter. Even though Toppy didn't give police Elizabeth Porter's name, it didn't take long to find her. By January 9th, three days after Krista's body was found, investigators had their first interview with her. According to police reports, she told them that Toppy was her boyfriend and that she had met him while she worked for an escort service in 1998. They asked if Toppy had been giving her money, and even though she was reluctant at first, she eventually told them that Toppy had been giving her a few hundred dollars a week in spending money as well as paying for her apartment and utilities. As news reports would later show, Elizabeth's landlord was under a completely different impression of the relationship between Toppy Worthington and Elizabeth Porter. She told me straight out that she was the stepdaughter. Rocco Vasili is the manager of the Ritz Manor Apartments in Quincy, where the names on apartment number four are Worthington, as in Christopher, and Porter, as in Elizabeth. I understood the relationship between Christopher Worthington and her to be a stepfather and stepdaughter. And what I make of it now is what I've been hearing in the paper and reading in the paper that it's not that way. She was totally crying. She was totally upset. You know, like somebody would be if somebody in her family was hurt. Porter lives in this Quincy boarding house paid for by the dead woman's father. Close friends said Krista Worthington was distraught by her father's relationship with Porter, a much younger woman. Last Thursday night, New Center 5 Steve Sprasia knocked on Elizabeth Porter's door. I'm devastated. Sorry. Can you tell me? I'm devastated. That was the day Vasily says five police investigators working the Worthington murder questioned Porter for several hours. As police would learn from Krista's friends and acquaintances in the days after her death, her father's relationship with Porter and the money he was spending on her had become a major concern for Krista. Author Maria Fluke. He was with this woman who had a court record, who was known to police, and who had these money issues that Krista was worried about. So suddenly her father and this woman, Beth Porter, were in the orbit of opportunity. Her own blood kin was one of the people that investigators were looking into. In interviews with police, Toppy Worthington said he was at home asleep at the time when police believed Krista was killed, sometime in the overnight hours of Friday into the early morning hours of Saturday, January 5th. Elizabeth Porter had said the same, that she was at her apartment alone. But police would come to find out within a few days that that wasn't true, and that she was, in fact, with a former boyfriend of hers, a fellow heroin addict who happened to call in sick to work overnight that Friday into Saturday. Elizabeth Porter's former boyfriend was a man named Eddie Hall. 
In her first interview with police, the report says Elizabeth told him that she hadn't seen Eddie in a few months. But investigators would come to find out that he'd actually been living with Porter at the apartment Toppy was paying for for the last year or so. According to police reports, Eddie told investigators that on the night police believed Krista was killed, he'd gotten too high to go to work for his 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift, and that he spent the night in the apartment with Elizabeth. Police then started to focus in on the money, asking Eddie and Elizabeth in separate interviews about what they would do if the money dried up. Eddie said they'd have to get clean and get jobs, while Elizabeth told them she wasn't that concerned about it. But police wanted to know if Krista's own attempts to cut off the money had driven them to kill. Author Peter Manzo. She went crazy over this thing. Um, she screamed at her father. She wrote letters to the lawyer. She got her own letter, a lawyer. Um, she wanted this stopped. She was watching her uh, future share of, uh, of the estate go away. Um, it's impossible n- not to think that the father's girlfriend had something to do with Krista's murder, or at least at the very beginning, because Krista was getting in the way. It had all the logical uh, uh, rationale for a murderous act. Krista's friend, Eli Gottlieb. In one police report, Eddie told them Elizabeth had once said that she wished Krista was dead because Krista was upset with how much money Toppy was spending and that he was going to have to cut back. Eddie added, however, that after Krista's death, she said she felt bad for saying that. Police would ask point blank if Eddie had anything to do with Krista's death. He replied, quote, hell no and said Elizabeth couldn't have done it either because she'd been with him that weekend. Police would ask all three of them, Toppy, Elizabeth, and Eddie, to take polygraph tests. And remarkably, both Toppy and Elizabeth would fail their tests, while Eddie's results were inconclusive. The trooper who administered Toppy's test wrote that he was deceptive and showed significant responses to the question, did you plan with anyone to harm Krista? while Elizabeth's report said she showed deception and significant responses to the questions, did you stab Krista in that house, and did you plan with anyone to harm Krista? ABC's chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams. So failing a polygraph isn't going to immediately say, we've got our people or our person, but it is undoubtedly going to lead to a lot more questions. When police came to speak with Elizabeth about her polygraph test and told her that she, quote, flunked it, Trooper Mason writes she became emotional and claimed that she was dope sick and so her results were invalid. She told them she'd cooperate in any way to prove her innocence. She said she'd even give them hair samples, DNA and fingerprints if necessary. But there was one key piece of evidence, one that would clear Elizabeth, Eddie, Tim Arnold, and every potential suspect police had focused on so far. The DNA. The unknown male DNA found inside and on Krista's body. Police had found saliva and semen on Krista's body that matched one person, but so far hadn't been able to identify him. I asked Dan Abrams about it. There was no way they were going to take anybody to trial until they had that DNA match, right? Because right. you could always just, the defense right. would say, well, whose DNA was that? Sure, was. sure. The DNA was the single most important piece of evidence in this case. Tim and Toppy and every other suspect in this case wasn't going to be tried. Without a match, no one was going to try. None of the other suspects would have been charged. 
Police had collected DNA samples from Tim Arnold, and remember that brown blanket that was thrown over Krista's body at the crime scene? Well, it turns out that his DNA was found on that blanket. But since he had previously lived in the house, authorities didn't find it that significant. What was significant was that Tim did not match the saliva and semen on Krista. Eddie Hall had also submitted a blood test and did not match the DNA. Neither did Tony Jacket, the father of Ava, who we talked about in the last episode. In fact, police took DNA samples from no less than 25 people in the first year after Krista's murder. But no one matched the DNA on Krista's body. ABC senior legal correspondent Sonny Hostin. Everyone denied a role in Krista's murder. Toppy, Elizabeth, Tony, Susan. The investigation really hit a dead end. They found no evidence that any of the people they had been investigating were involved in Krista's murder. So they turned to what many people call a forensic Hail Mary to try to get some leads. So in an effort to find out who last had sex with Krista, police would take their most unorthodox step yet, and it would grab national headlines. On World News Tonight, murder, DNA, and a crisis in the nation's crime labs. It drew national attention because police tried to find the killer by asking every man in a small town to submit DNA. Investigators took the controversial step of launching what's called a DNA dragnet. The district attorney is asking all male residents, 790 of them, to voluntarily give DNA samples. While in Truro, I asked former FBI profiler and ABC News consultant Brad Garrett about the DNA sweep. How unusual is it for essentially every male in the community to have been some kind of suspect at one point by doing a DNA sweep? There's something that happened in this case that... I have maybe heard of one or two other times uh, where uh, law enforcement and the district attorney's office decided to swab every male in the community. And it's a very controversial thing to do because you're really asking people, and it has to be voluntary, to give up their DNA. So you're, you're basically saying my entire community is a suspect. When authorities announced the DNA dragnet, Massachusetts State Trooper Christopher Mason defended the move. We are turning to the Truro community and asking that they uh, look inward and uh, begin to consider the possibilities that exist within their community. Um, Who may have interacted with Krista Worthington? Who do they know has interacted with Krista Worthington? Uh, From an investigator's standpoint, uh, it is efficient and it is effective. Um, It allows us to... uh, couple an assertion that uh, I was not the donor of that DNA, uh, that I do not know Krista Worthington with forensic evidence that supports that assertion. So what investigators did in the early part of 2005 was stand out front of businesses in town asking men to voluntarily give up their DNA. All over town from the pizza place to the dump, police are collecting evidence, hoping to find the man who had sexual relations with 46-year-old Worthington before she was murdered. And one of those spots where police asked for samples? Less than a mile from Krista's house. I'm going to pull in here. This is the post office that the investigators stood outside and asked guys that were coming in and out to give their DNA sample. And it is, it is so small uh, for a post office. Um, it's got the little shingle sidings and the white trim, and, and out front is the big U.S. post office sign. 
But this was kind of where the center of town is. There is no mail delivery in Truro, so everybody has to come here to get their mail. The move was immediately controversial, and residents called for it to end. Clearly circumvents my civil right to privacy. Truro resident Dick Seed is so outraged by the idea, he called the ACLU, which has asked Barnstable County District Attorney Michael O'Keefe to stop collecting the samples. Seed is especially angry at O'Keefe's statement about those who would not cooperate. We certainly will be compelled to look at that and the reasons or why they may not, and there may be good reasons why. To me, this is really no more than a coercive statement. Now, where I come from, this is a form of coercion. Author and consultant Peter Manzo. Truro men who were told, you don't have to give us your DNA, but if you don't, your name is being put on a list and you will be scrutinized henceforth. The DNA sweep would result in the collection of between 150 and 200 samples, according to Trooper Mason drawing criticism about the possibility of flooding the state crime lab with DNA swabs, resulting in a backlog of untested evidence. In April 2005, two months after the sweep, investigators met with the state crime lab to discuss how they should prioritize samples for testing. But instead of tediously sorting through the DNA samples, deciding who to test first, investigators would get the break they'd been looking for all along. It was April 7, 2005, now more than three years after Krista's death, when the state crime lab told Trooper Mason that they'd gotten a DNA match for the semen found inside Krista. Turns out it came from a DNA sample given to investigators more than a year earlier. And within a week, police would put cuffs on their man. Last night at approximately 7.15 p.m., detectives from the Massachusetts State Police Detective unit assigned to my office arrested Christopher A. McGowan, age 33. When an arrest was made, we were stunned, especially since the person who was arrested was not anybody we had ever heard of. McGowan was, was an easy person to blame for the crime. That's next time. A Killing on the Cape is a production of ABC Radio, 2020, and ABC News Digital. David Sloan is 2020 senior executive producer. Terry Lickstein is our executive producer for this series. Karen Schiffman is our senior editorial producer. Reporting in production by myself, Mark Remillard, Karen Schiffman, Matt Wolf, Kerry Cook, Gail Deutsch, Mark Dorian, Jeff Schneider, Jonathan Balthaser, and Eric Mallow. Peter Manzo served as a consultant to ABC News for this story. His book is Reasonable Doubt, The Fashion Writer, Cape Cod, and The Trial of Chris McCowan. Our website is produced by Lauren Efron. That's at abcnews.com slash a killing on the cape. There you can see pictures and pieces from the case, as well as maps and key locations from our episodes. 